The Film Jive podcast is made possible by Audible.com. Sign up for a free 30-day trial and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash filmjive. That's audibletrial.com slash filmjive. everyone and welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. This is episode number 65 and my name is Zach. And uh, this is Andrew. And, and this uh, is... Oh, oh. <laughs> whoa, whoa, jumping, my, jumping out of line. Sorry. I was going to introduce you if you just want to introduce yourself. You should, intru- you, should in- you should introduce me. All right. Andy and I, as you know, are not alone now. Uh, I'm very excited to introduce a returning special guest. He is the co-host of the Directors Club podcast. Patrick Rapol is with us. Welcome back, Patrick. Oh, hey, welcome. It's so, so, yeah. All right. Uh, uh, yes. So, uh, j- you know, jabbering neurotic man is on with you guys. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, it's, great. it's nice to be here. I'm trying to remember the last time you were on the show. There was a period where you were like on like every other episode for a little uh, while. I've, and I've then... been on like, I think I've only been like three or so. It, okay. It's either The Hobbit maybe oh, okay yeah that's that's exactly what it was yeah andy was on that one as well was it really yeah you don't remember i wasn't there it was you steve patrick and nick and you guys talked about dwarves like yeah. freebasing crack cocaine god i do not remember that i i kind of remember talking about lord of the rings movies but that's all i remember <laughs> um well we're not talking about anything remotely similar to the hobbit at all well i like to think that this takes place in middle earth so. well and i like to and i like to think that the people who made this are dwarves they're freebasing crack cocaine <laughs> well the opening certainly is uh tolkien-esque i thought it was kubrick-esque actually i agree uh we're gonna be reviewing a police training video from 1988 titled surviving edged weapons um andy and i there wasn't a lot in theaters or on video on demand that we were that keen to watch. So Andy threw this title out there and I said, sure, why not? And I guess because Patrick, I know you've, you kind of have an interest in like the Mondo Kane movies. I've heard you talk about before in the past. I, before I watched this, I kind of, it's Mondo Connie. Mondo Connie. Okay. Uh, I kind of assumed that that's, what this was going to be so i thought well maybe patrick might be interested in talking about this so that's what we're going to talk about we're also going to talk about uh, some other things that we've watched since the last episode and that's about it so does anybody else have any business they'd like to take care of before we get into surviving edge weapons i'd like to show a solidarity and say for a long time i also pronounced it mondo Kane. Uh, but it's uh, Italian for dog, so it's cane as in canine. All right. I guess with that said, we can get into our review of uh, Surviving Edge Weapons, and we have a brief clip, and here it is. Basic perception if you get into a knife attack is there's going to be one single thrust. You're going to cleanly and effectively block it, and that's going to be the end of it. You're going to apply a little bit of your academy-taught self-defense. You're going to bend that knife out of his hand and arrest the bad guy, and that's the end. It doesn't work that way, sports fans. 
things go from bad to horrible real quick. Right away, you're in deep shit. You're in bad shape. You're in a bad place. Faster than you ever perceive it happening to you. When I first saw the knife, it surprised the hell out of me, to be honest with you. Uh, for one thing, it wasn't your normal three-inch buck knife that usually most of your street people carry or whatever. Uh, uh, it was subsequently learned that he was a butcher at a local slaughterhouse, and uh, this is an implement he used to slaughter uh, beef with. It was about an eight-inch bony fillet knife. And it, it was bright out. It was 6.30 in the morning and during the summer, and you know, there's just something that kind of uh, spooky about looking at an eight-inch knife with the sun gleaming off of it. Surviving Edge Weapons, uh, police training video, as I mentioned, it recreates uh, actual confrontations involving police officers and armed defenders with uh, edged weapons, knives, you know, things like knives. Uh, and it's and in order to, okay. yeah, and it's in order to create an understanding of the degree of danger that edge weapons create. Uh, it also discusses the personality types that use edged weapons, tells what officers need to know to deal with that kind of a threat. Uh, it's a very intense, action-packed 85 minutes, uh, and you'll learn how to defend yourself against the mounting threat of knife culture. And you'll learn never to die in a ghetto. <laughs> right. Um, it's directed by Dennis Anderson and uh, narrated by Roland, Ronald Roland. I'm sorry. I guess I'll start with you, Andy, because you are the one that suggested this movie. And I'm curious to know. I mean, I know I have a sense of why you suggested it, but maybe what your background is with it, how you found it, things like that. Okay, well, you know, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big bootleg guy, and I don't like using the term bootleg, you know, because uh, it's not like you're going to be able to go to the store and buy a purchase, you know, purchase a copy of Surviving Edge Weapons. But I like uh, kind of like you know, the the weird that you can kind of find in different places. Mm -hmm. like, and um, and I was just going through different titles, and uh, and I came across Surviving Edge Weapons, and I read about it. And I'm like, this is for me. I like training. I like training videos, instructional films. So I'm like, yeah, this is for me, and I got it, and I watched it, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the extreme violence in the uh, the film, and uh, the autopsy photos are really gruesome, and uh, the talking heads were, my God, were they intense, especially my boy James Phillips, who did not <laughs> die in no ghetto. Can can um, I just say, do you yes. know that he plays two of the uh, like assailants in the video? You know, I've seen this many times. I've never noticed that. He plays the, like, smart-talking biker guy who, like, takes oh, the knife. Like, oh, you're a big guy, aren't you? Big man, big man. <laughs> and, and from what I've read, he also plays one of the cavemen. Oh, really? I think he's the one that is, like, the caveman that ends up killing the other one. Oh, so he's not the one that's stabbed in the groin area? No, I try I read it, and then I tried to go back and watch it, and I couldn't, I couldn't see the resemblance. But that's yeah, just because those... Those clumsy costume teeth are just so good that you couldn't <laughs> possibly tell who's behind them. Well, I, I, I love that guy, and I also love the, the knife expert. And he reminded watching it this time, it reminded me of uh, the, the villain of Only God Forgives when he was doing his little <laughs> exercises outside. Um, I love that guy. He's, uh, I wonder where they found that guy. Um, uh, apparently, from what watch. I... That this is like what he does for a living is he does a uh, slow mo knife <laughs> in slow motion. Well, he's like a knife expert, and yeah. they bring him to these, 
you know, police training facilities and he runs teaches these courses or whatever from what I've I've read. So so one of the one of the things that's funny about this movie is that it has people who you can tell are sort of actors and then it has people who sort of appear to be like just police officers who maybe thought it'd be fun to be in this video who aren't actors. Um, it has a bunch of people who are clearly Canadians. Uh, oh, they're, they're not Canadian. They're not Canadian. <laughs> they're they're from Milwaukee. That's that. I know happens. it was shot. I know it was shot in Milwaukee, but uh, the one guy who gets pulled over and says, "Here's my ID," and he pulls out. Oh, a and, knife. and uh, well, my favorite thing is that it's supposed to be in Los Angeles. That's my favorite <laughs> yeah. part. But but <laughs> I, I do such think such thick accents. I do I do think a movie like this they probably just put an ad in uh in Sol- Soldier of Fortune or whatever like seeking martial artist in the Midwest area to show off skills because there are some people who just look like the kind of weirdo dorks who hunt, hang out in like ninja shops and stuff like oh, that. Oh, uh, the one guy that uh does the ninja moves in his office before leaving. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's the guy. That's <laughs> what you're talking about. The the the, uh, the guy in the powder blue suit yeah, who decides yeah. not to go through the metal detector again. Oh, I love that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to know the st- I want to know that story. Did he plan on killing that police officer? Or was he just like I'm going to kill someone? I don't care who it is. This is the well, guy. That's, a, that's the other hilarious thing about this movie is uh, a vet, like you know, it sort of has different modes as instructional trading videos do when it's as it's teaching different things. But there is just a section of this movie that just feels like the climax of a really exhausting kind of intense action scene in a cop movie. Like it just feels like you're watching a hundred of those in a row where it's the guy who's dying of a stab wound and the paramedics can't find him. Oh, and he's and got then, the gun. <laughs> yeah, but then the next scene is the guy who. He got stabbed in the stomach, so he's lying on his stomach, and he has the gun train on the subject, yeah. on the suspect, who's ten feet away, and who's also like, like that. That's a weird, intense. Like all of these feel like make like, your other move, than the fact that they're blow your brains out. Yeah, exactly. Other than the fact they're like super low, like just horrible looking, and just are clearly you know industrial quality film. They just, they look like they got like just chopped out of a Michael Mann movie or something. Oh, I know. <laughs> Those, they're, all those scenes are fantastic, but the best one is the the devil worshiper. And then she has Iron Iron Maiden posters on yeah, all Yeah, that, that whole thing where they blew her away and she's dead, and then that like Rottweiler comes out and he's barking the freeze frame, and it's like, now how many edged weapons do you count? Well, that was the moment where it, like the Reagan era like fear tactic thing oh, became I mean, like movie, most yeah, apparent so to par- me it's so paranoid the whole yeah. thing well they even rip on liberal the liberal courts yeah yeah because the liberal courts are so soft on uh suspects knife crime. Who, 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 on knife crime oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean this thing is like totally from that period it is so paranoid i mean it there's a slight racist tone to slight that, that slight James, James, James <laughs> when he's going on about the animals in the ghetto. Oh well, yeah, I thought just the depiction of the I guess minorities throughout the entire okay, that's true movie is. Just, I mean, there's that you cut out of that paramedic sequence in, or maybe it's the caveman and you have the two Hispanic drug dealers in oh, the yeah. alleyway. You got the stuff, man. Oh, I got the stuff. It's coming. No stuff, no money. And then. It, it's like it, it's the most kind of like overtly racist the whole movie is like that it's i think and, i think i think the whole the most overtly racist part of the movie is the part where it's just uh sort of various stock black and white photos of other countries and it's <laughs> like 
immigrants yeah. who come from lands where the police yeah. are not oh, yeah, so yeah. kind. They will look at you as a death squad and they have a strong knife culture. They don't just carry knives. They use like like it is it is just explicitly saying like, hey, with Filipinos, shoot first. <laughs> like that's essentially the message it's broadcasting. Well, I will say about the stock footage stuff, there is the one I don't know if it is in the Philippines that some kind of uh like activist yeah and then the guy comes in with the machete and just starts like hacking away at everybody oh, that was insane that you know that is a moment where i actually feel like the movie does actually do a good job of showcasing the reality of actually how dangerous a blade can be in a situation like that like that is a really I don't know. I found that to be pretty frightening. I think, I think that 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 section, and I do think the autopsy photos of well, yeah, oh, that. Yeah. I mean, the wounds these people suffered is incredibly, uh, in, in, incredibly intense and just grotesque. Um, the one with the scissors still sticking out of the body is like an image I'll never forget. That I've and I've seen this movie multiple times, and I always know. Here's this part with the scissors out of the body. Um, very gross uh, scenes, but yeah, um, this, this. I mean, uh, so, so uh, Zach, you had me on because uh, I, I think I've said before on my own podcast um, and elsewhere that uh, Mondo Kane is one of my very favorite movies ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and what sort of elevates Mondo Kane above sort of an oddity uh, for me, at least, is that the way it's edited. Um, it, it keeps switching between something that's funny and then there's something that's gross and then there's something that's just inexplicable and then there's something that's super racist and it keeps changing its mode enough that even though the whole premise of the movie is we're going to show you surprising things, it consistently surprises you as you as you watch it um, because of those tonal shifts. And I think Surviving Edge Weapons has a similar strength. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's it is a weird thing for me though watching this where you set me up with two cavemen you feel like you have to go you're going to explain the entire history <laughs> of edge weapons of knife culture yeah and and then you're you directly come out of that and go into these survivors of these altercations and very like uh very harrowing uh <laughs> the man whose lung collapsed that was crying at the end and that juxtaposition of like absurdity to heavy reality is it's kind of mind-boggling to me that somebody could put this together and think that like that's the thing i wonder i actually stumbled across some like uh police training like forums where people like police officers were talking about this movie because i guess it's still used today in like training seminars which is kind of shocking to me but uh just this I'm trying to remember where I just lost my train of thought. I was trying to think where I was going with this. The 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 uh the tonal whiplash of oh, the cavemen to the Yeah, I don't know if if they feel like if I'm looking at this as a police officer watching this as a training video and from what I what I'm reading on these forums is that everybody takes this very seriously. I don't know if those moments are injected to just kind of like up the entertainment value of it. Or if this filmmaker, like, I get the sense that Dennis Anderson wants to be like Walter Hill or Sam Peckinpah or something, <laughs> which, which I wanted to ask you, Andy, because you love Sam Peckinpah. I do love Sam Peckinpah. There's a lot of slow motion in this. Is it Peckinpah? And it's done, well. and it's done <laughs> well. It's actually, I think, done pretty well. But I think that a lot of 
it's different. I think in in Peck and Paul, it's very uh like poetic, right. whereas in this, it it kind it's of blunt. Like, highlights the insanity of everything that's going on. Because like, I well, think I what mean... Patrick said that we're just getting like snapshots of scenes, like we're almost getting like the climax of movies. I mean, that is he's inc- so right in that line of thinking, and it just it it creates a sense of chaos and insanity to it all. And it is, um, I mean, I do think, <laughs> and as as ridiculous, I mean, we're watching we're watching this as civilians who are not necessarily concerned about knife safety, though. I do suppose I know I now know more about protecting myself if anyone pulled a knife on me, um, and I happen to be carrying a nightstick. Uh, twenty-one feet. Twenty-one feet yeah. back. Tw- twenty-one. Twenty-one feet back, and watch out for ba- baseball caps because they probably have razor blades. Razor in the back. blades. <laughs> there are more places to hide edge weapons than you could even imagine. Uh, um, but but I mean, if you if we are going to actually uh, take a moment and think about reviewing this as how effective it is, I do think. I mean, if you think about every instance you've ever had where you've been sitting watching a training video, whether it's driver's ed or you just started work at Burger King or wherever, you're always sort of an unwilling party. Um, and I do think that even if judging this on purely how good of an instructional video is this, I think that for an 84-minute movie, um, it provides enough levity um, and enough seriousness that it would probably keep a you know, uh, a, a classroom full of cadets or officers going through retraining or whatever, it'd probably keep their attention the whole time, which is the point. I, I agree, and I, I would think especially the the thing that I find weird that they still use it today is strange to me because it feels so much of its time, whereas I'm a, I could believe this being used in 1988 more than I could believe in 2014. And especially just because this is kind of like pre-internet era and I don't feel like this would be something that would be considered as sort of ridiculous as it is now. Well, I mean, they still use, uh, so one of the movies I watched, um, in preparation for this, I decided to go back. You watched movies to prepare for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I figured I'm going to be on a podcast talking about, uh, an infamously hilarious instructional video. I should probably watch some other infamously infamous sort of instructional videos of different kinds. So one of the things I went back and I watched for the first time was the original red asphalt, that uh driver's ed film from 1964. Okay. I've never, yeah, I've never seen this. So red asphalt is sort of a notorious uh, training. It's not even a video cause it doesn't really teach you anything. Um, it basically just, it, the premise is that there's a cameraman uh, following around the high California highway patrol on these ride alongs. And basically, they just keep showing up at the results of accidents, and you see actual footage of sort of gruesome accidents. And um, what the as technically inept as it is, I mean, it's all the sound is done in post. the The film is, you know, sort of just shaky sixty millimeter Bolex camera kind of stuff. But um, the way it's edited, it does a good job of slowly ramping up the grotesqueness uh, of every moment. So it starts off, you just see. People, they have like a little bandage on their head. You see, you see a little more like cuts and bruises. And then suddenly the cuts are deeper and deeper. And then suddenly you see a guy getting stitches all across his face. And then, then it sort of climaxes with showing you a corpse who their bottom jaw is kind of hanging off their head. Uh, and the reason I, and I mean, red asphalt is still used in schools today. Uh, some of them. I mean, they, it's a series. So they've, they've actually continued making red asphalt movies about one per decade. Um, 
the last one being Red Asphalt 5, which was made in 2006, which, if you recall, is the year that uh, all the <laughs> which is around the time that all those hostile and saw movies were coming out. So I, I'm really because because the one from 1964 really grossed me out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hesitate to think what the one from 2006 is like. But um, the thing about a movie like that is it's just designed to shock you. And basically, I guess the thing they're betting on is at any moment, anyone in the classroom will, if it gets too much for them, they'll just cover their eyes and stop watching and we'll have done our job. Whereas, so this has those, you know, kind of red asphalt, scared straight kind of moments where it's like, (laughs) or it's like, you don't think knives are scary, do you? Look what a fork did. Um, Oh, yeah. But, uh, but I think this is much better. Well, this (laughs) is that. There is things to, I guess, to learn from this. Like, it actually does go in depth. In turn, you guys were talking about the twenty-one feet thing. I mean, the only thing that, while watching those these sort of like cutscenes that I found humorous, was how inept the police work <laughs> actually seems to be. Like, where it, it's so, and that just I think comes down to like the poor acting and staging of everything. But just watching how these cops almost in these cutscenes are just like allowing themselves to be stabbed. Well, in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, that's probably how it actually, you become complacent in your job, which allows those things to happen. <laughs> but like that guy at the courthouse, like <laughs> that moment, like you can't, that guy, that cop doesn't even like move at all. He's just like, <laughs> stab me. I'm watching you remove this out of your pocket, <laughs> whip it out of your hand, cut my throat. It's a moment like that where I just, I start laughing because it, it it's just like Dennis Anderson clearly never read David Mamet's on directing and he doesn't know that people don't, you know, we want to watch them do good at their jobs. But even just like when the cops do kind of uh, alleviate the like the threat, uh, it still is like very awkward and doesn't seem very uh, it's not as it's not so believable to me. But I so one of one of the funny things about this, though, is that. Uh, again, it keeps shifting its mode. There is moments where it's just like comically inept cops um, getting stabbed in the neck, uh, which is funny, <laughs> which is always funny. But then there's also like a weirdly, and again, this feels like it's just cut out of, say, like the first act of like a Coen Brothers movie or something, where ostensibly the whole point of this uh, little demonstration is the only point is to demonstrate the di- proper distance. Um, but there's the weird Vietnam veteran who leaves a supermarket with a coat full of meat. Yeah. <laughs> and and when when the cop asks him to give the meat, the even though the <laughs> cop is knife. Yeah, even though the cop is thirty feet away, the guy pulls out a knife and then the cop, you know, pulls his gun out on him. Uh and because the cop is the proper length, he is safe uh from the imminent a- area of danger. Um but then they have an argument about put it, about throwing the knife down because it's his commemorative Vietnam knife and he doesn't want to damage it. So they're, all right, well, kneel down slowly and place it on the ground. I promise it you it won't damage it. <laughs> like there's weird – like it's such a weirdly human moment. <laughs> like that – and it's – I do think that Dennis – I mean part of this – part of like like most training videos, part of the – or any kind of educational – like even going back to a video like don't copy that floppy or some other things you watch in school, like – uh, part of the hilarity is just the fact that they don't have a lot of money and it's clear that the actors are not really actors. They're just sort of people who were around 
who are around who could demonstrate the proper way to lift a box or whatever. Um, so there is that hilarity. But I do think that in moments like that, Dennis Anderson shows a little bit of wit. And maybe he was just trying to entertain himself as he did industrial filmmaking. Industrial filmmaking is often a very boring process. Um because it's so not about art and just about making sure, make sure the subject's centered, make sure they can see the whole body so they know that the people are lifting with their knees and not their back, make sure that everything's lit. Like, there's no room for subtlety uh, in something like that. So maybe he was just trying to entertain himself, but um, moments like that, I think, elevate more than just like the scenes where the cops are just bad at their jobs. <laughs> I was gonna. Um, I thought the scene where they uh, unarm the prostitute, the way that the prostitute reacts to when she's unarmed, I think is a, like the the Vietnam meat man. Her <laughs> her response her response is like, oh, no, okay, all right, all right, all right. It seems you're hurting uh, me. It yeah, it did seem more uh, natural. Mm-hmm. Whereas <laughs> the moment where the guy knocks on the door and the guy comes with a medieval the sword, sword and that's, like my, that's, that's my favorite part of the that's my favorite part of the movie that is what originally prompted me to show it to people was the fact that he had a sword in his in the corner of his house those swords are like 20 pounds and that thing i, I want to like know a... i want to know that story i want to know what led up to that did he know the police were going to come and knock on his door that day or was he just really annoyed someone was knocking at his door again but, it's just cut out from a different movie like he knew like he it was in sort of a situation. It's like I rewatched Breaking Bad recently, and there's a scene. I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's a scene where a character we've never seen before they um, sort of just calmly go into a bathroom and commit suicide. Um, <laughs> and I feel like maybe that's just like the pressure has finally closed in on him, and the fuz have him, and there's nothing he can do. Um, I want to know what kind of guy has a medieval sword in his corner. <laughs> well, no. That's his son's medieval. There's a whole backstory about his son that he was reuniting with over the past week. Uh, and he decides that, like, he always seemed like a loser to his son. Um, so he decided he's not going to go out like a loser. He's going to go out swinging or stabbing. Like and uh, if, like, like if it takes and if it, if it takes using the sword that his son got from Renaissance Fair, then so be it. I mean, no. that's what I got out of it. You didn't... <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed he was annoyed that someone he was like watching a show he was really into and he just <laughs> didn't want to be bothered now I do have a question if you guys the uh, telephoto lens moment that was all staged None of you, that was real. you think so I do not believe that for an instant mm, I don't know I always thought it looked incredibly funny because <laughs> in like, prison they let guys wander off and practice their well, I knew that was like my thing. Like, what? What did they told their 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 you know whatever they have their guard? Like, oh, we're gonna just take our toothbrushes and go outside and uh, and uh, train, you know, play. So, you know. but I do love the setup of we captured this with a telephone. This has never lines. been seen by anyone else. Yeah, what you're about to see, you've never seen before. I actually, I actually think that's the worst part of the whole thing. That I would have taken that that section out. I thought it was believable. I, I, I. I mean, I questioned if it was real, but I, I think maybe it was. Uh, I mean, it doesn't look like anything else in the movie, and I guess that's all they really needed to do to make it look believable, was to not yeah. look like any other moment in the movie. Um, <laughs> even if that took putting a weird, like, fake video time code at the bottom <laughs> yeah, of the frame. <laughs> Whatever they did, it worked on me. I always, I always, I always, I always believed the scene with the the Chinese star. I was like, where did they get that footage from? That has to be real. <laughs> 
The Chinese star. I don't remember. Oh, you did. The cop was chasing some guy, and the guy just stops and throws a Chinese star at the. Oh yeah, 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 and he misses. Yeah. Andy, were you expecting the goot to walk on screen at any point? Oh, I always do. Yeah. (laughs) I I always expect. I always expect him to show up on screen and be looking for Mangala. I I just wonder why they never like worked this movie into like the police academy. I don't. I don't know. I don't know who who the Goot is, but uh, there was Steve, a. That's there our was name a, for Steve Gutenberg. Oh, okay. I was gonna say there was a goat uh, in the movie, p- illustrated inside of a pentagram, and I imagine most of the <laughs> actors in this instructional video would pronounce the word goat. Goot. <laughs> I was expecting Michael Winslow to show up and make sound effects. I was well, expecting Jamie Lee Curtis to show up, considering it was a Canadian movie <laughs> with so many people getting stabbed. Did you guys catch the Stephen King cameo? You know what? Yeah. <laughs> you know was, what I'm talking about? Yeah, when I was watching it again last night, I was like, oh, there's Stephen King. But I don't remember what, what like, little sketch it was. The sanitarium sequence where they, like, the, you know, that's the yeah, other thing. Yeah, he's got the baton and he hits the guy in the arm. The depiction of EDP people yeah, cool. in this movie is, like, a whole other kind of I, offensive thing. Like, I think you got to admit the, 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 the opening scene of him just punching the window. <laughs> Well, that, okay, that's what I love, too. I love that this movie thinks that I'm keeping up with the multiple narratives, that it can cut away from something and then cut back to it an hour like, later. It, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember what was happening. But, <laughs> but, but they're right. I totally did. I totally did. No. <laughs> what a perfect way to start a shift. And the, But Stephen King was the other cop, you know, the, yeah. the, the bull cut. He was the I one just, with the baton. Yeah. Wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but it's just like another thing where the extreme lengths that they go where they have that guy cutting his fingers off. And I just like sitting and throwing here. It, and throwing it at the police. <laughs> and it's like, if I'm a cop in training, what am what am I getting out of watching this guy do this? I, um I two I think I think the I think it might be twofold. I think one, um you're getting the uh, ever important benefit of dehumanizing anyone <laughs> Uh, who you might need to use deadly force against, which is a big part of police training. Yeah, uh, yeah. See also all the cre- incredibly racist stuff in here. Um, but the second part is, I think, levity. Uh, and, that he, I think, and that he's an EDP and he's crazy and he's going to go. Yeah, well, I mean, the liberal media wants you to think that all homeless people are poor and harmless, but uh, many of them are rich and deadly, I guess. They never finished that statement, but I guess that's the implication. I do think that the film does an admirable job at when you're watching it, you, the viewer even has that sense of paranoia that the film has. Like every time I watch it, I go, wow, this world is filled with with edged weapons that could come at me at any moment. I do always think that when I'm watching it. Yeah, I've already started to build my razor blade baseball cap. (laughs) Knife culture. This is the only, only time I've ever heard about the knife culture, though. I, I mean, I have to say, I, I, I think before watching this film, uh, I was not as influenced uh, by uh, movies that glorify the blade. Um, but now, but now this film, movies especially, that glorify, glorify the blade. One of them was, um... I, I'm, I'm influenced by this movie, and uh, though that's why I have fish, fish hooks in my, uh, in uh, my cut, <laughs> my, uh, my pants cuffs. What that is the, uh, one of the most amazing sequences, though. It's just them going down the line, t- showing you all the different ways that people work blades into, into their, their 
clothing. It's phenomenal. Yeah. And that, it just stops, it stops the movie dead for 10 minutes. <laughs> it's basically just like the uh, junkie mon, sort of the uh, tr- drug, drug trafficker junkie montage in Superfly, where you're sort of doing this one thing for a while, and then all of a sudden there's this crazy montage of still photos that's that might as well just be sent to Curtis Mayfield. Where you see all these like weird kinds of knives and blades, it's like this could kill a goat or any kind of warm-blooded animal. Yeah, I know. Well, I like the mace that some kid supposedly made. I like the John Carpenter score. Oh well. Mm-hmm. One of the films that glorified glorified the blade though is Hatchet for a Honeymoon, which is a Mario Bava film. So I was pretty excited about that. Yeah. That was interesting that they chose that movie and Halloween as like yeah. their two uh, examples of. I think they literally just went to the video. I think they just literally went to the video store and picked the first two boxes that had someone holding a knife, uh, yeah. ice pick style, by the way, or Hollywood style, if you will. <laughs> um, <laughs> they picked up those first two movies that had on the cover. I thought we'd be covering more axes, hatchets, um, things of that nature. I really. Still don't know how to defend myself if someone comes at me with a with a with a tomahawk. That's true. Surviving, surviving edge weapons too. There was no chainsaws or anything like that. They need to make a sequel. <laughs> so yeah, James James Phillips. <laughs> he's my he's my guy. It's not gonna work out that way, sports fans. It's not gonna work out that way, sports fans. Think again. I think on when you posted the picture onto our facebook page i said he was the american face of fascism i have actually a question about that guy james phillips out of all of the talking heads he's the only one that i don't believe their story and because, I don't because his face looks so good like... his face looks fine but it's even it's even not that why i don't believe it. i don't believe it because of his tone and what he says yeah well i mean he's the only like you know they, they talk about it like movie stars having it and the second he came on screen, I assumed that he would be like the host of the – because he comes on fairly early. I assumed he would be hosting the rest of the film. Yeah. I just assumed, oh, this is the center of our film right now. And it was it was kind of surprising that he – you know, that he he didn't come back more. And I think it's just – he has the it factor. Um, and it's sad that James Phillips did not go on to star in more films because even like – even just seeing him like chew out Steven Seagal as his police <laughs> chief or something like that, like – there, this guy as could have been a character actor in action movies. He needs to be in Expendables three. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's when the they finally, star. the Expendables three, when they finally have, uh, they finally have James Phillips. They have the uh, Jim Cotta guy, and they have, uh, a, <laughs> they have one of those horses that kicks someone in the head in America's Funniest yeah. Home Videos. But yeah, I just never believed his story. Um, the guy that prize and the woman that has all the scars yeah i buy them i believe them this guy no did that cry does the crying moment happen in one take is that all one shot yeah yeah okay because i i was re-watching like little segments of it this morning and i skipped to the end and i just saw his like a still of him crying and the his crying was like so intense that for a minute i didn't even believe it was real anymore it looks it looks like like a mad TV sketch where it cuts away and it cuts back and someone has crazy tear. Like, I don't know if it's the makeup they used on him, but like there are crazy streaks under his eyes yeah. <laughs> where the tears have been falling. I want to know if he's still police. Officer. He was the only one that wasn't wearing a police uniform again. And he was dressed in casual clothes. So I'm, I'm assuming he was no longer a police officer after his attack. 
I wanted more of the guy at the beginning who mentions that he was stabbed by a butcher with a beef knife. <laughs> yes. He's just like there. He comes in, he's like he drops a bomb and then he's like, I'm out of here. Like I was stabbed. <laughs> Turns out he was a butcher and he was cutting stabbing me with a beef knife. And not, uh, only, not only that, he he drops in that little poetic flourish where it's like uh, it's very surreal in the daylight to see the sun <laughs> gleaming off a tanged yeah. blade, <laughs> which just sounds like something that uh, that Christian Bale would say in American Psycho or something like. Christian Bale should star in the James Phillips biopic. Oh my god! <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. There were there's like some like specific. Oh, the wig split, best wig split ever. They <laughs> chopped a guy's head. <laughs> that that was great. <laughs> the um the police officer that pulled the the truck over, and when he went to get his ID, he just pulled out that knife and stabbed the guy in the cheek. <laughs> there's the guy. There's the police officer who got stabbed through the hand, but still kept his cool enough to do Ooh, his oh, job. Yeah. And that then had great. that great character moment at, where he just looking at this hole in his hand and looking back at the guy. <laughs> yeah. <shot>. There was. <laughs> there's the one moment where they're. The one cop is like, he's been attacked and they're sparring. And as soon as the guy pulls out the knife, the cop yells, knife! <laughs> <laughs> no, well, if we're going to talk about... The dude running with the machete. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The dude really did not want that parking ticket. Yeah, I know. <laughs> read body language. It's, 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 it's like, I don't have to read body language when the guy's coming at me like that. Pretty sure I've seen 20 of this guy on the first level of Contra. <laughs> but um, if you want to talk about the ways that this movie sort of changes its tone and surprises you, I thought the, that footage of the, and I do, and again, this could be fake too, but I do believe this was real, of those training montages of the people who weren't told that the guy would be pulling a knife on them. Oh yeah, I believe see those, those people. Yes. Seeing all those people totally flip out and fucking yeah. up, including the one like guy who's clearly just this officer. He's like, he's hanging in there three more years so he can like leave with his pension. And, and this fucking crazy man, like crazy man in this training situation starts screaming at him and he falls. He just like completely collapses to the ground. <laughs> Oh man, like I thought those were really funny kind of humanizing moments. Um for something that is so rah rah police force. This whole this whole world is full of psychos with, with knives and fish hooks in their pants and we're the one we're the, we're the one uh, line of defense. I thought that was a really fun fun moment of just like cops totally fucking up. What about there was a segment too where there's that shootout in the bar? That was the moment oh, man. where I'm like, where does what does this have to do with edge weapons? <laughs> this is like surviving rounded weapons. Like I think a knife gets thrown yeah. during the shootout, but like that's the extent of it. It's like you know, there's like a little there's like a little coke on a knife like, <laughs> somewhere on the table. It's like you know, we go into the bar. We've got they've got their whole scene where it's the Hispanic men are preying on the white blonde woman, and then the cops walk in, and then they're somebody's just like cops and then it's like boom 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 and then that's that was a peck and paw moment yeah, yeah. but i was just watching this like where yeah it was a great scene but i was just like where where are the edged weapons it's, pro like, it's probably in a lot of these police training films and it just shows up all the time because it's like oh this is like the best scene we've ever done so we just gotta keep <laughs> recycling it so it's like the car flipping over yeah. in, in the trauma movies yeah <laughs> it's just they want to reuse that footage 
much as I can. How can we work? I thought those. I thought those drug dealers had a really good setup, which was deal drugs openly in a table somewhere, like a well-lit table in the back of a bar. <laughs> but if a cop comes, have this woman who is not attractive but is blonde uh, offer to have sex with the cops right then and there, and uh, you should be good. It may work in the past. You know, it's it's too bad that those cops were too clever for their little trap of not having sex with a woman in the middle of a bar in uniform. <laughs> The one thing that I did find really interesting was the penetration only has like less than an inch and you could be dead. Like that was kind of freaky to me, I guess, that it could be that simple. The whole movie has a weird existential bent to it. And I think part of it is, of course, seeing actual, you know, autopsy photos of people who have been stabbed to death. Autopsy photos you've ever seen. You certainly um, but I think another part of what makes this movie like just fills you with despair as you watch this movie is the takeaway seems to be, well, there's really no way of telling. Like, <laughs> if literally every item on, that anyone ever has, <laughs> it can can have a knife hidden behind it. Uh, and you have to stay 21 feet away from a from another human being to make sure that they're not going to murder you. And that like, well, sometimes you can get stabbed and there's a lot of blood, but it doesn't mean you're going to die. And sometimes all it takes is an inch and a half in the right place and you'll die for sure. Yeah, like, there's, there's no blood in you won't even. There's this sort of weird sense of, well, we're kind of fucked. We don't know. <laughs> Turn, turns out we can't stop civilians from sharpening things and trying to murder us with it. So uh, you're kind of fucked as being a police officer. Uh, you yeah. should probably get a job. You should probably get the job in the police force where you get to make training videos. That's a lot safer. Yeah, it seems like the the general takeaway. If you're if you're a cadet watching this, the thing that you have to take away is that every person you will encounter will have some sort of edge or pointy weapon, and you will be stabbed by these people over and over again. There's nothing you can do about it unless you just shoot first and stay 21 feet away. I I, I like to imagine a, a version of this movie that had a bigger budget and had it <laughs> and it had like celebrity host like Eric Idle being like a uh, now uh. Back when I was in the troop Monty Python, pointed sticks, those were all fun and games, but let me tell you, in real life, pointed sticks can kill. Um, or I'm just, yeah, I mean, maybe if there just was one moment in this movie where someone ran at someone else with a banana, that would have been good. But on the other hand, there was that moment where the guy knocks on the apartment door because the party's too loud, and just a hand bursts through <laughs> And then the sound effect of him beating all the guy's hand with the baton was pretty. I don't know why that's. I haven't seen that in a film. I don't know why that hasn't been in a real film before. That's such a great moment of the hand just bursting out. Yeah, I did think this movie was missing uh, Damon Wayans from Colors. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember when he's dancing around in the diaper? (laughs) Do I remember that scene in Colors? (laughs) <laughs> I felt like that would have been entirely appropriate here. I almost wonder they these came out the same years, colors and this. I wonder if uh, Dennis Ho- <laughs> Dennis Hopper and Dennis Anderson kind of were are the same person. <laughs> yeah, they were working probably. together. Probably. probably. Hopper Dennis was like, "I'm going to come AD on this, and so I know how to shoot colors." So the the story this the one of the other compelling sort of meta stories that happens as you're watching this is imagining Dennis Anderson and sort of imagining what it was like uh, for him and trying to imagine the kind of person he is to take a training video and to turn it into something like this. Uh, And I like in my head, he's just someone who he always wanted to go off to Hollywood and direct action movies, 
but he just got stuck in Milwaukee. Like he got maybe maybe his wife got pregnant and it just didn't make sense. So he just sort of stuck making industrial films, and and like he had a notebook somewhere that was just full of great scene. Like <laughs> if for his ultimate cop extravaganza, <laughs> like oh man, uh, like it's just a routine call, but suddenly a, a hand pops through with a knife and stabs the guy in the head. <laughs> And when he went and when he was called on to make this video, he sort of went to that notebook and sort of had to only slightly adapt it where it was like, <laughs> all right, so it's that intense scene where someone is bleeding out and dying and the paramedics can't find them. Uh, so uh, that that would be really that would be a really powerful climax of a move of sort of a dark 70s kind of cop movie. But uh, I guess in this context, I'll put a voiceover saying be specific about <laughs> what directions you give the paramedics. He was using this as his, like, his reel to show to Hollywood. Yeah. He was like, look at all these great endings that I've already thought of. All we have to do is write the movie that goes up to the ending, and I'll direct it. <laughs> I guess um, the guy who produced this, Charles Remsburg and Dennis Anderson. Charles Remsburg, I guess, is some really like well-renowned criminologist or something who has written like dozens of books relating to police work and police training and the things that you encounter on the job. And I guess him and Dennis Anderson post this movie were like for a long time, they would just do these seminars and that was kind of what their careers became after this. Can you imagine if your dad is Charles Remsburg? (laughs) (laughs) Can you just imagine like Edward just, you're sort of, you just sort of live in a world and you're just, and he, you know, he's, he's retired. He's written these books he he's in the system where now like he gets he's gets these sweet consulting gigs but he's still like crazy vigilant man and you're just sort of in the suburbs and everything out of his mouth sounds like a dick tracy crime stopper tip (laughs) (laughs) and like you're his daughter and you're just like i just want to go to prom and he's like prom is where most stabbings happen (laughs) well how many times did it sound like they're like stabbings mostly occur at domestic in domestic altercations and then it seemed like 20 minutes later they were telling me most stabbings happen somewhere else <laughs> it seems like just stabbings happen everywhere, everywhere. in every situation in Not milwaukee yeah. this is Not milwaukee style. most stabbing most possible stabbings happen like if you if you look at a chart of all stabbings that are possible most of them happen yeah it's like a baseball t- statistic you know like yeah the batting <laughs> average of stabbings <laughs> you know, you only need to stab 500 to go to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Attempted swipes and successful swipes. <laughs> now, did murders, it... <laughs> murder stabbed in. Yeah. Did you guys stay through the credits? Because there's a great like little Easter egg in the credits. I stayed through the credits, but I must have missed it. Okay, there's a PA on the movie whose name is Joe Bag of Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes me wonder if maybe that's Charles Remsburg's son. <laughs> it might be. When you first said that, I thought there was like an like there was like a extra scene like in like one of the Marvel Studios films, like yeah. James Phil finds the cosmic cube or something. Yeah, there's a scene where Nick Fury approaches that Chinese knife expert. <laughs> it's like I'm forming a team. <laughs> They're eating shawarma together. Yeah, exactly. I liked all yeah. the acronyms. Smens. Oh, they're great. They're great. Yeah. Uh, gun. You know. I like the. You gotta think. Just think. Gun. <laughs> the uh, just... the kill me license plate. <laughs> yeah, I'm the guy in Los Angeles. Yeah. King Ida Lincoln Mary Edward. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I didn't catch that. <laughs>
So, so another thing about this movie that is sort of what, and obviously Charles Remsburg being script consultant and, you know, having the guidelines that I'm sure that they did in making this movie in the first place, uh, it does sort of capture sort of the mentality of us against them that is actually prevalent in sort of policing in major metropolitan areas. So uh, David Simon, you know, creator of The Wire, uh, one of his first big jobs, uh, he was a, I mean, he was a newspaper reporter, but one of his first sort of big breaks was uh, the Baltimore Homicide Department let him follow them around for a whole year. And he wrote a book about it called Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets. And it's one of my favorite books. It's really amazing. And the way that this movie sort of just casually drifts from atrocity to atrocity where it's just, yeah, here's someone who got stabbed to death. Here's another person who got stabbed to death. This person didn't think to check the boot, so he got stabbed to death. Like, that is, <laughs> like, I mean, these aren't, these aren't uh, homicide detectives um, in the, you know, in the movie. And this isn't the sort of thing that's necessarily for homicide detectives. But that sense of just, like, day in, day out, just, like, horror, um, which I think is one of the strongest points of, the book is it really de-glamorizes the idea of like chasing down the bad guys and finding the clues. And it's mostly just like finding like drug dealers shot up by other drug dealers in an alley and being like, well, I don't know. I don't know how the fuck I'm going to find out who did this. No one's talking. Um, And just that happening all the time. uh, I got a very similar feeling from watching this, which I thought was really interesting for such a funny movie to have the same sort of real world fatigue that I felt uh, when reading uh, David Simon's book about homicide detectives. Yeah, because even when it glamorizes the violence, it's still essentially, I feel, pretty mundane. Like, it, the, the actual... You mean when it, when it glorifies the blade? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's still those, like, situations are still pretty mundane scenarios, I guess, that you would find yourself in as a cop. But it's not, you know, completely unbelievable that these things could not happen. Even as ridiculous as something like, you know, a satanic, I don't, even the way that that's just played is like, this is just, we're just taking care of business. Like, this is just, this is just, this <laughs> is not, just the job. Shocked, you know? Yeah, they're not shocked by it or anything. No, <laughs> not at all. Like, the only thing that said is they opened the door and he goes, what the hell? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, come on, Joe. I saw this last week. Um, I would like to, I would like to ask Andy a question. Mm-hmm. So you said you're a fan of uh, educational and instructional videos. What, yeah. what, what? If 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 you if listeners hear this and they go out and watch, and this by the way is just on YouTube. If you just search for yeah. uh, "surviving edge weapons," you can just watch it. That's I'm sure pretty sure that's how we all watched it. Um, so go ahead and run and check that out. It's pretty funny. Uh, but what other videos are kind of like like this, at, or at least are have the same similar kind of entertainment value well um one that i actually thought of while we were having this discussion that i'm upset that i didn't tell zach about so we could do both of them is a film called shake hands with danger and it's about like 15 to 30 minutes long and um it takes and it's all on a construction site and it's things that you don't do on a construction site because if you do you're shaking hands with danger and you're gonna you know you're gonna get hurt oh wow and, i really want to watch this because i worked people, construction like, for four years so a guy gets his hand cut off a guy gets set on fire uh this one guy is standing where he shouldn't and like a a, a, a flying bolt goes into his chest and kills him like a house gets knocked over i mean it's just pure insanity and the things that they tell you not to do is don't come to work drunk 
Um, if you've had a fight with your wife, don't bring it to the yard. You know, like these, like just normal, like very mundane things. Well, I mean, getting drunk, you shouldn't be drunk and operating heavy machinery. But like these, these, these things that <clears throat> would actually cause these problems, I guess. And uh, there's a country song that's played out throughout the thing. Whenever something bad happens, this country song plays called Shake Hands with Danger. And um, it has a very blue collar. Um, you almost feel like you should be drinking a beer while you're watching it. While you're watching it, very blue collary kind of feel to it. And um, and it is because it's shorter than uh, Surviving Edge Weapons. It is just wall to wall chaos. And um, that one's probably my favorite educational uh, instructional film. So that one is a good one, and it kind of fits in this topic. But some of the other ones that I really like. Um, <clears throat> that um don't fit into the um protecting yourself realm is uh there's one called um sex for handy capables i believe and it's a sex edge ed film for um for lack of a better term mentally handicapped people that was made in like the 70s i believe and that one's jesus christ and that one is very weird really Um, yeah is it uh, is it weird yeah it's pretty is that an unusual film yeah, it's pretty damn weird. Um, I like a lot of the drug ones. There's this one really great one about LSD, about uh, what happens when you take LSD. And and the guy, he had just taken LSD and he's going different places and he goes to, to like a carnival and he gets a hot dog and he looks at the carno- at the hot dog and it's a troll doll instead of a hot dog on a bun. Isn't um, that just Skidoo? <laughs> Isn't that just the movie Skidoo? <laughs> <laughs> watching um, jack and gleason trip out on lsd that's your your training video basically um so i like that one um there's a, i mean there's a lot of good ones out there um, there's a very there's a very short video that uh sort of made the rounds on the on the internet uh sort of became a minor viral thing um uh recently it's called so, uh, I, I recommend everyone look it up it's just called think about this and it's this uh it's basically a safety in the workplace video but there's no instead of narration there's just this crazy kind of torch song that sound it sounds like maybe like an early Kate Bush album um and it's just singing about you came to work today alive you want to stay alive and it's and it's instead of like demonstrating what not to do, it just shows people getting into accidents. Um, it like, it's just this crazy and it's, you know, whoever they got to do the makeup effects had a really, really good day because it just looks like a bunch. Like it looks like if final destination was set in a factory and it was made in the eighties, it would, it would look like this. Cause it's all these crazy kind of 80 style effects where people's hands are getting chopped off and, and there's crazy burns and bubbling everywhere and their legs are being ripped off and stuff like that. And there's blood spraying everywhere while this woman is warbling over this weird kind of, and it does sound like kind of a song you would hear in a, in a kind of a grindhouse moot kind of movie that plays over the end credits. Uh, but it's, it's just like basically like just a music video. Um, the the news article that in which I first saw it on Badass Digest had a really great headline that was ju- that was called "Just Another Day in the Atrocity Factory." <laughs> That's really what it feels like. It's just it's all happening in the same place, and everyone is just dying horribly. So that one that one's more fun. Um, a little less. It's I mean it, I think it might be a little over more overtly comedic than 
than some of the ones that we're talking about, but that one's really good too. I just uh, looked up Shake Hands with Danger, and it was directed by Herc Harvey, the director of Carnival of Souls, which is maybe why it's well made. Mm. Oh yeah, that was another thing I wanted to talk about is that I'm kind of glad, it, it, as someone who's sort of interested in the art of film and the history of film and stuff like that, like it is kind of neat to, you know, there to realize there's this whole other world of film that is never explored, uh, which is industrial films, and that's because they're kind of artless and boring. Like it's not like a hidden world of treasure, but it is a place that a lot of you know, not a lot of, but a, a fair amount of filmmakers have come from. Like Robert Altman started making industrial films. Herc Harvey went on to make Car- Carnival of Souls. He mostly did industrial films, stuff like that. So uh, it's kind of neat to at least have a little bit of context for that world. Um, so I kind of appreciated going back and watching this and some other ones. Yeah. Well, Andy, now that you mentioned Shake yep. Hands with Danger, we'll have to do that in another episode. Yeah, it's really short. Like I said, it's like, I just looked it up, it's 23 minutes. So maybe it's, when we, we're going to do a, the If Footman at some point too, probably in the summer. But that's only like, that's only like 40 minutes. So. All right, well, we'll maybe have a nice a double feature. Double, a double feature. Shake Hands with Danger even sounds like a really great exploitation movie title. Oh yeah, the title's like it sounds like the literal translation of like an Italian giallo movie or something. Kind of does, yeah. Um, And like I said, it's got a great country music song that plays throughout the entire thing whenever an accident happens. (laughs) And and the uh, the the narrator of the song is named One Finger Joe because of an accident at work. That's pretty good. In my head, the song just sounds like the uh, theme song for 2000 Maniacs" by Herschel Gordon Lewis. Um, it's not as bl- it's not as bluegrass. It's more like outlaw country. Oh, I see. Um, it's more. A lot of people mis- mistakenly attribute the song to Johnny Cash. It's not a Johnny Cash song, but it has that kind of like outlaw country song. To it. All right. So I guess now my question is: Is "Surviving Edge Weapons" like Jive Turkey rateable? <laughs> I don't think you can really like rate things like this necessarily. I this mean, is like a same like children you, situation. Like, yeah, I mean, it's more. Did you enjoy it? You know. I mean, I I mean, as I think it's kind of as far as rating any art is silly. Oh yeah. Um, and it, it's I mean, you you can rate this as far as you know, like like all the reasons we talked about. What makes this different than a lot of other movies? Like. I mean, all most educational films are kind of silly in one way or another, but what sort of elevates this is the editing and the tone and the inventiveness for some of it and the weird, yeah, the tonal shifts and stuff like that. So, I mean, I would, I would, I would, I would give this a high rating. I don't know how many jive turkeys <laughs> exactly, but I, I think it's about as rateable as any movie. All right, I, I like it more than the than the Hobbit since that was the last one I, uh, Patrick and I did together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> More than 12 O'Clock Boys? Yeah, I did like this more than 12 O'Clock Boys, just because I'm more likely to watch this than 12 O'Clock Boys again in the future. What What are your, your top top three Charles Remsburg uh, <laughs> pictures? Remsburg surviving Productions. Edge surviving Edge Weapons, Surviving Edge Weapons. They're the top three. Oh, man. I bet he has a whole... I bet when Charles Remsburg dies... There's going to be a whole uh, library of films that he made himself <laughs> that were rejected because they were too out there and crazy, um, and he couldn't get funding for it. So he just made it in his garage and basement with his buddies, um, and they're more 
along the lines of a footman horses movie where it's about like <laughs> defeating, stamping out communism and drug users. Oh man, I gotta read Charles Remsburg's book, Tactical Edge, Surviving Iris Patrol. I think we should start the Remsburg cast. I think it's time. It I think is. it's time the man got his due. Have a little book club. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Just like, yeah, just like a dozen, like, 50-year-old women, like, sitting around a nicely furnished living room just talking about, (laughs) talking about, you know, like, tactics when dealing with blunt objects. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good. uh, Street street survival tactics for armed encounters. Exactly. Exactly. That's a pretty good uh, image. He doesn't mess around. His books are like 500 pages. Yeah. He's got a lot of information to, to give you about. I wonder if he, I street. don't know if he was a real uh, police officer. Oh, he was, the re- he was the real. He was the real. He's like, I bet Charles Remsburg is like the basis of every Charles Bronson character that he ever played. Probably. probably. Yeah. Do you think Charles well, Remsburg he was murdered by lessons? <laughs> He's mur- yeah, the blood lesson he learned was when his family was murdered by Junkie, yeah. and then he became this. Well, he's he's won the prestigious O.W. Wilson Award for Outstanding Contributions to Law Enforcement and is in the American Police Hall of Fame. Did you know that Errol Flynn is the only person to win both a BAFTA and an O? What was that, Wait, what was that award again? Never the mind. The O.W. Wilson joke. Award. <laughs> Never mind. He is the co-founder of the original Street Survival Seminar. You know, we we could just read his Wikipedia <laughs> podcast. Like, that could be the Charles Remsburg podcast. This guy. All right, so moving on into other stuff we've been watching. Patrick, I'll throw it over to you. Is there anything you've watched recently? I know you mentioned uh, Red Asphalt. Yeah, I watched Red Asphalt. That was, man, I really didn't think it would be too bad because it was from 1964, but... That guy's jaw hanging off was the worst. It was really upsetting. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Watching that and uh, Surviving Edge Weapons back-to-back really fucking bummed me out today. Because <laughs> there's only so much like actual photos of dead bodies I can look at in a day before. You know, just kind of getting a little little, little sad, a little, uh, little depressed, maybe a little gloomy. Uh, realizing that I'm just this weird meat bag that can be ended at any time by an inch, an inch and a half of blade um so yeah i mean i've been watching a l- lot of movies i watched uh so uh i'm i'm preparing for this bonus episode on my podcast where me uh, so i was born in 1987 and uh, me and someone else we've had on the podcast a couple times mike flynn he also was born that year and we realized that um having grown up pretty much in, entirely of the 90s not being really aware and at any point during the 80s there's a lot of films that you know uh, when you sort of get into uh you talk with other cinephiles and you sort of get to communities like that there's always a lot of older people um and there's a lot of films that get mentioned from the 80s that were really big deals when they came out but then sort of promptly vanished um and they're not the kind of movies that people stick around and watch a lot like uh Sort of the movie that inspired that is Cocoon, which was the hugest hit in the world. Um, but I don't think anyone my age really gives a shit about Cocoon. Like if you <laughs> if you've seen it, maybe you've seen it, but it's not like ET or something where it's a movie that oh you got to see this. Right, right. But it's everyone who grew up and was of theater going age at that time. They probably saw Cocoon. I think that's Andy's favorite movie. <laughs> 
No, I don't like I don't like Ron Howard, but um, I have seen it. Um, are you are I you sure? No... Are you sure your favorite movie? What's wait? What's the what's the what's the sequel called? Cocoon again? Cocoon. <laughs> it's no, the it's, return. The, the return. return. The return. Yeah. So um, I so I've been watching uh, a bunch of eighties kind of ephemera, um, including Zapped. Oh, that's, <laughs> have you... that's a lot of fun though. Yeah, there's. I have I have a pretty there's a pretty low cap on how much fun I can have with any 80s sex comedy. Um not necessarily because I'm a prude but because every single one is predicated the upon the idea that like just sexual assault is really really funny. Like there's not a single sex comedy that came out in the 80s that isn't based on the idea of like breaking privacy or just tearing people's clothes off in public oh, or something like that. That's more that's more than the 80s though. I mean <laughs> That's I, it's, I think it's a lot of it's mostly the eighties. I think I mean even in even movies like uh like uh, uh what was the sixteen candles had had like a weird sort of implied rape in it that was played for comedy um in the eighties and I think that sort of diminished. So like Zapped is basically it's it's a little closer to like Hollow Man than it is American Pie, <laughs> where Scott Bayo's running around using his power to just like. To, to just basically molest women. So I mean, it's it's weird. There's the part where Scatman Crothers gets super high and imagines that he's cha- like, is he riding a horse made of corned beef? And then his wife, played by Lawanda Page, is like a Viking who's chasing him. There's something that he's imagining that he used to be able to eat, but he's not allowed to eat anymore. But it's but he has some kind of weird marijuana dream that's funny. Um, but no, I mean, I saw that. I saw the Money Pit. Which is a really funny movie. Yeah, uh-huh. I actually watched that movie a lot when I was a kid. Which is weird because I'm I'm younger than you are, and I owned the Money Pit on VHS and would watch it all the time. That's it's good. It's like it's like the long long trailer or something. It's yeah, I haven't seen it since then, and so I don't remember that much about it. But I actually remember like I've never been a huge. I like Tom Hanks, but I'm not like a huge fan of Tom Hanks during like that period where he was doing all of those comedies. Yeah, that, me too. I I felt the exact same way. I'm not really a fan of comedic Hanks, but I like him in that movie a lot, and I think his chemistry with Shelley Long, like they're a good pairing together. I feel like that movies like that nowadays they don't have comedic actresses in the wife slash girlfriend no. role. Mm-mm. They just have Jennifer Aniston or someone else who is sexy or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, and Shelley Long in that she's not. Like she's not cast because she's like sexy. She's cast because she's really funny in that, and it's it, that was fun to see that there was actually like oh, maybe we could have a movie with two people who are funny in it with a comedy. Uh, one of the other actually one of the other eighty movie eighties movies I watched was Blind Date with Bruce Willis and Kim Basinger, and that is a that is a comedy that has no comedians in it. <laughs> it's that that is that that movie is closer to something like uh, those uh, what were those. Um, there was those two movies that came out around the same time that were like friends with benefits and no strings attached. And they were two comedies with the same premise. Uh, but ne- but none of them had actual like comedic actors. They just had like Ashton Kutcher and <laughs> like and Natalie, Natalie Portman, Portman and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so that's how, that's how blind date felt where it was like, wow, I bet this would have been funny if funny people were in it. But instead, I mean, you know, Bruce Willis can, is good with a one liner or whatever, but, but yeah, the money pits good. Uh, and it's, and it's just, I mean, it's always a delight to see rooms being destroyed and houses being destroyed. Destruction's a really wonderful cinematic thing. Um, 
Isn't Especially... there like a weird subplot with the guy that is the compo the the composer or whatever, like is hitting on her or something? There's something weird. Yeah, that's that was actually the thing I took away from it was when I compare it to like the two movies that it reminded me of were like the long, long trailer, which is the Desi and Lucy movie um, that Vincent Minnelli directed. That's really funny where they get a trailer that's super, super cumbersome and horrible. And it, it just, you know, crazy slapstick comedy ensues. And then there's a Buster Keaton movie called One Week where mm-hmm. um, him and his bride buy a buy sort of a pre-made house. It's sort of like an Ikea thing, but it's house, but it's a whole house that they build themselves and one of his romantic rival who's jealous misnumbers everything. Yeah. So he creates this crazy wacky version of the house. And again, more slapstick comedy ensues. And the thing about those movies is they're very focused in on, well, this is the part that's funny. And here's what you need to know in order to be interested in these characters and be invested in them staying together through all this hardship. But that's it. We're not going to bore you with a lot of other stuff where the money pit takes a while to kind of start. Um, and there's that, that weird subplot where it's like, maybe she, maybe she committed an act of infidelity. Maybe she didn't. And there's the part where they're mad at each other. And there's really only a good, like, I'd say 30 minutes of the movie that is what you aim to see, which is just hilarious shenanigans involving, you know, staircases falling apart and stuff. Um, and it's, it's kind of a bummer. And I don't know if that's a, that's just that movie or if that's a, sort of a function of the era. But I feel like uh, a movie like that, if it just sort of opened with them, you know, buying the house <laughs> and like you could have been caught, brought up to speed way quicker than like the 15 minutes or so it takes. Mm-hmm. Andy. Yes. Anything that you've watched? Uh, you know, I, I actually been incredibly busy. <laughs> I haven't watched anything. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> All right. Have you guys, uh, I did, have you, have, I, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, go ahead. No, we're gonna say. I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask if you guys had seen Breaking Bad. I've all of Breaking Bad, because that was the other thing. I finally caught up now that all of Breaking Bad's on Netflix. I finally caught up and watched that. I've honestly never watched an episode of it. Okay. Yeah, I watch well, a lot of television. And Zach, you watch Breaking Bad less than I do, don't you? Well, I I watch like Kitchen Nightmares. <laughs> like that's my television. You know, like that's funny because this episode Gordon was about. Shows. I feel like an alternate. A uh, title for uh, surviving edged weapons could be kitchen knife mares. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, okay. So I, I don't obviously not going to spoil anything. But I was a little surprised. What a fucking bummer that last season of Breaking Bad is. So you're because the rest of it's super exciting, like fun. Oh my god, how are they going to get out of this one? Oh, he used his crazy science and he got out of it. And then that last season is just the toll of human life. What have you done? You are. History's greatest monster. It was—it's really—it was really sad. I mean, it's not like bad. I, it wasn't like oh, what a shitty tonal shift. It was just—it was uh, not what I expected for the finale, and it was a real bummer. I was like inherently turned off by Breaking Bad just because every day somebody was telling me how like desperately <laughs> I needed to watch Breaking oh, yeah. Bad. Yeah, I mean, uh, at some point I might watch years, it. Yeah, you'll catch up on it. Uh, I and also what what surprised me was. The finale, I even I even calculated the date. It was 166 days went in between the finale airing on TV and me actually watching it. Um, and it wasn't spoiled for me at all, which is pretty amazing to me. Because it's not like I left Twitter or anything. Like, people freak out so much about TV spoilers. But uh, I, I managed to watch Breaking Bad unspoiled just fine. That's what kind of happened with me and Lost. I watched Lost, started watching Lost near 
the end of its run and I never but nothing was spoiled for me. So yeah, you can you can always go back to Breaking Bad. It's nice to have that to sort of like I haven't seen Deadwood yet and I just know like oh it's nice that there's that's there like a really you know unquestionably great TV experience that I have not you know touched yet. It's nice to have those in your back pocket. That's why I'm never going to watch Citizen Kane until I die. <laughs> uh I watched The Last Stand finally. Hey. Yeah, I was um I was pleasantly surprised. I will say, you know, it's another one of these great movies that showcases a bad Forrest Whitaker performance. <laughs> you know, which is just Well, like, there's a lot of those. <laughs> right. Uh and all the stuff with him is just really not interesting to me, but I was really um surprised by like Schwarzenegger in this in terms of how relaxed he was whereas I feel like Arnold at this point it's really hard for him to actually I mean it was always hard for him to but to actually feel like a character in a film in a story and not just be him and his persona and I mean he he still doesn't really feel like the character he's playing but his self-awareness is felt like severely subdued in comparison to the stuff he's been doing since he left politics and I, I genuinely love the fact that the movie completely embraces the the kind of playfulness and goofier aspects and works yeah. that integrates that into the set pieces. I mean, even though I don't like any of the stuff with like the FBI fucking up, like the set pieces are at least interesting. Like the when they're creating yeah, the roadblocks. Yeah, I read your letterboxed review and um yeah, the FBI stuff and Forrest Whitaker is completely pointless and the movie would have it would have served the film better to spend more time in the small town with the the eccentric people that live there well it's even just like the way that Forrest Whitaker is introduced is so uh uninteresting like he just walks in puts his coat on he's like all right we got a we got a drug dealer. We're moving him, and then it just happens. And then you know, before you know, it's gone. And then, like the whole element with the like the woman who's double crossed them. Like I don't know yeah. what purpose she was really serving, ultimately, other than just like here's how he figured out how to do this because he had someone on the inside. But I the one thing too is I wish that the villain was more charismatic. Like for yeah, he's pretty forgettable. Yeah, for for a movie that. Is just full of like really fun character actor performances to have like your main villain be kind of completely uh, anti, you know, lack any kind of charisma. I thought was kind of a misstep, but I did think the 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 last like showdown between he and uh, Arnold was nicely done and was pretty pretty enjoyable. Yeah, I I think too that stuff the climax stuff would have paid off better if that villain was more like I almost I almost thought that at some point they were gonna work in Arnold's like backstory as an L.A. drug cop with yeah. this drug dealer and that he was actually coming to the town to kill Arnold, which would have given it kind of like a high noon feel to it, which I guess this film kind of has anyway, like a reverse high noon because or even like helps. Rio Bravo a lot too. Um, yeah, 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 but. You know, Luis Guzman is great. As always, Johnny Knoxville is even he's just fine. Yeah, well, I I enjoyed actually quite fun in the movie. Yeah, yeah and and I enjoyed the uh, like the way that they worked in the gun museum like later yeah. into the movie. Who was the villain? By the way, I don't even remember. I don't know. I mean, there's One there is I think, I think it was 
I think it was just a handsome European man, right? <laughs> It was yeah. <laughs> they just went to central Spain. casting and asked for a handsome Spain European man. Yeah, give me a handsome European. I mean, they do do the good thing there of like building like Peter Stormare into mm-hmm. it too. Even though, like, where he's completely off the leash in this and just completely chewing mm-hmm. every scene that he has, which sometimes is not a good idea with him. I find he's like kind of inconsistent in that way. But they at least give him some personality to play with and that he's a part of that and i liked his stuff but i just you know for a movie where like harry dean stanton is in it for like a minute i was gonna say i didn't enjoy seeing him i enjoyed that it was great but it you know yeah it brought me to tears like he gets blown away it was it was it was tragic (laughs) that makes you hate that makes you hate the villain even more though that's who they kill oh i know i know and the fact that Harry I, uh, Dean is like ninety years old and is willing to like pretend to p- be dead in a closet—it's like this guy. <laughs> this guy is up for anything. This is why I love him. Uh, I um, uh, it, one thing you can say about movies uh, like this, where there's just the there are so, so many supporting characters that are so forgettable, it, it makes you appreciate. Like I'm no I'm no fan at all of latter day Tony Scott, but one thing his movies were good at was being populated sort of with really good character actors. Oh, yeah. um, you could always count on like a, uh, on like a um, John Turturro or something, just sort of being somewhere and, or a, a James Candolfini and just sort of being somewhere and being amazing uh, in a tiny role. Well, like Tom Waits showing up in Domino as like the devil. Yeah, or whatever. exactly. Like... Tom, Tom Waits is this weird desert Jesus or whatever. Yeah. Uh, happens in that movie. Uh, I, I also, I also thought it was pretty funny that, um, like part of early part of the appeal of early sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies was that he was a bodybuilder and cer- soon he became a much bigger movie star than he was a star of that world. But for a while there, they were still trying to like, they were still trying to make that be his thing where every early Arnold Schwarzenegger movie you watch, there's at least one moment where he has this crazy like feat of strength, like in commando where he picks up a phone booth and throws it at someone or some or in predator when he, sort of lifts that in that first sort of siege, he sort of lifts this trailer up off of its wheels and he's doing all these crazy feats of strength in these movies. And I almost thought that the same way that happens, Johnny Knoxville has his little moment with the telephone pole where it's, (laughs) (laughs) where it's like, Oh, we're going to let Johnny Knoxville have a little jackass moment. And it'll be fun to watch because you know that he's really a guy who does this. um, And that probably isn't a stunt double up there for most of this because you've already seen three films in this the- in the same theater that he where he did crazier things than this. Well, I, I, I thought that good. almost like justified his ca- casting entirely. Like it was like I, we put him in this movie so he could do that. <laughs> like that's why he's here almost. I, he's, I, he's hardly I, present, really. I mean, you you do not have to justify John Knoxville's casting to me. I love that guy. I love my favorite moment. I mean, the probably the best moment in the whole movie is when Arnold is arguing with a bunch of senior citizens who won't leave a diner. <laughs> it's like a really amazing, again, just like small out of nowhere moment that totally undercuts the tension in a way you don't expect from a modern action movie. Um, but my favorite moment in the entire movie is a really dumb thing, which is just when Johnny Knoxville has that giant ass hand cannon and Arnold Schwarzenegger asks for a permit. John Oxel reaches into his pocket, pulls out a bunch of M and M's paper. <laughs> like he has to dust the M and M's off of his gun permit, and it's the weirdest thing, and it makes me laugh so much. <laughs> yeah. That's all, 
Oh, that's all I needed. That's all I needed, Johnny Knoxville. Well, then, I, I, Johnny Knoxville, I believe, would wear a bathrobe full of M&Ms and gum permits. Well, that's one of the things that I like about the movie is that it does have a playfulness that modern action films just do not have. And um, I appreciated that. Yeah, it, it felt like like a movie that was kind of in between being a throwback and still something that was yeah, very like yeah. of its time. And The only problem that is in reminding you of those kind of older sort of simpler movies uh it does make the part the parts where it is there are the more generic hollywood bullshit like again all the parts with the fbi and just like in any other you know in a in any other a movie that was like this but was made in the 80s it would just be oh he's a drug dealer and he's going to be passing through here and that's yeah, reason yeah, enough to stop whereas i, I think and it's been a while since I watched. I haven't watched Last Stand since theaters. But isn't there like some implication that if he gets through this town and goes to his destination, he'll deliver plans that will put the world in jeopardy or something like that? Like, no, I thought it was just literally he's trying to get to the border so that they can't. Yeah, so can. they can't. They can't. Arrest, okay, like, I, mis- I misremembered prison. it. All right. I just would have Never wished mind. that he was just the movie would have started with him like in the car all already, yeah. like just cut out the whole yeah. escape portion of the movie and the other thing too that the whole like drama with the dead the dying deputy the one that everyone is like we're fighting for him kind of thing like uh i don't know when when it when it tried to play like heavy drama when and especially when arnold's like supposed to like get emotional over the guy's death (laughs) i just kind of felt like i i know why you're you know that this is motivation but it just I don't know, just tonally it seemed to kind of come out of nowhere and I just but that was not like a wasn't a big problem for me, but it's just Forrest Whitaker. That guy. He's terrible. Well, he was bad in uh Out of the Furnace. Yeah. And I don't know what he's doing anymore. What is he doing? I think he's just Anything coasting that comes on his way. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of just coasting on the fact that he's a that he's a name. And, you know, you can, he, you can just throw Forrest Whitaker in there. I mean, he did his big sort of oscar performance in The Last King of Scotland. Um, and, well, did anybody uh, see then, The Butler? Hmm? Did anybody see The Butler? Oh, right. He, was, he did The Butler. Oh, there you go. Which <laughs> I don't... You, lovely, still, you lovely Daniels. I, I do lovely Daniels, but I and didn't you, see... And you that. love any movie that has John Cusack playing Nixon. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Freaky deaky himself. Yeah, I... But I do like Lee Daniels. I'm comfortable in saying that. I thought the paper boy was pretty good. And I like his uh as just I like Lee Daniels for the fact that I think Lee Daniels makes movies that nobody else makes. Whether they're they're good or not is you know, remains to be seen, but I appreciate Lee Daniels sort of uh fuck fuck everybody approach and I'm just gonna go all out over here. But the reason why I didn't see the the reason why I didn't see the butler is because it didn't resemble what I like about Lee Daniels at all. It just looked like you mean it didn't seem like a movie John Waters would make. No, right, right, exactly. So that's why I didn't watch it. But I am curious if Whitaker is like good in that movie or not. But uh, the one other thing I'll mention really quickly is today I watched this. concert film called miles electric a different kind of blue which is uh it chronicles sort of like miles davis in like the 60s when he transitioned from like traditional jazz with something like kind of blue and into his more like experimental electronic p- 
period in the 70s with like uh bitches brew and on the corner and stuff like that um and then like so there's like 45 minutes of that and then the last 45 minutes are when he played at the isle of white festival like with along like on the same bill as like hendrix and Joni mitchell and stuff like that and how big of a deal that was and just the fact that like the the first 45 minutes the only thing that drives me nuts is that carlos santana is in this movie <laughs> and his like his his statements are like he introduced us to multi-dimensional consciousness through music <laughs> and it's just like get out of here like I, just his <laughs> over his overstating miles davis's importance to music was just kind of gross like but at least they have that but then they contrast it contrast it with like stanley crouch do you know who he is do you guys know who he is he's like a he's like a jazz historian but he's also like he's like one of those guys that's a big defender of uh cosby's what's that speech called that cosby made about like that pissed off a bunch of african americans you know what i'm talking about no no. <laughs> no. All right. All right. He made some speech that had to do with like Oh, the Gettysburg address. No, like some like, you know, blaming essentially like di- like talking about how black culture is like a mess and everything. Did he like do that. with like rap music or something? Well, it was like a bunch of stuff and just he made some analogy that had to do with like soda bread or something and it was just like <laughs> really ridiculous and it pissed like there's a lot of people that hate bill cosby because of the things that he said i've never listened to the speech but i just know stanley crouch is like a huge defender of it and he's like one of those guys that's very opposed to hip-hop like stanley crouch is always talking about how horrible hip-hop is yeah but he at least they have all that crap with carlos santana juxtaposed against stanley crouch basically talking about how miles davis is a lousy sellout (laughs) you know so they do provide some balance that like and they get into the fact that he was like largely criticized when he did transition into more experimental stuff because all these jazz critics were still reviewing his music as if it was just traditional jazz rather than acknowledging the fact that it was not that um and that they were just like he's a sellout he should just be playing you know traditional jazz because that's what he was great at um, but I enjoyed the movie. The concert is great. I mean, it's not shot in any kind of real interesting way. They're just capturing the moments, but there is something like Miles Davis playing the trumpet. There is something really, uh, amazing to watch cause, cause he's so delicate with it. Like, it's like, I'm going to sound so pretentious, but it is like, he's like making love to his trumpet and it's really like mesmerizing to watch and then just like watching all these different other band members perform because essentially the concert is like 40 minutes of improvisation where they just start and they just keep playing and playing and playing and they shift and they do it's like an interesting sort of like they get into like different sub genres of like jazz where they kind of do like this dixieland sort of improv and they do different things and uh it's entertaining i guess if you like miles davis but then I also feel like if you like Miles, you don't know Miles Davis and you watch it, you might really get into Miles Davis. But I like Miles Davis, so I enjoyed it. 
is it when you when you talk about like one half being the concert and one half being this sort of documentary, is it literally divided like that where you get to watch the concert uninterrupted or is it like sort of cut back and forth? No, it's well, the the first 40 minutes is all the interview stuff and they intercut B-roll of the concert over that stuff along with other like stock footage and photographs. And then they do just play the whole concert from start to finish. Oh, nice. Once that's over, you come out of that again. Because the other thing, too, is with all the stuff leading up to it, they also interview all the guys that were in the band when they performed that show. So the ending is like when you come back and it's like Herbie, they, they ask Herbie Hancock to like uh, come up with a piece on the spot, like as a tribute to Miles Davis. So it's like, you know, Herbie Hancock improvising at like the electronic piano. So that was kind of interesting. but. Yeah, like it is I was glad that it was not interrupted and they just let the whole thing play. So That's that that sounds cool. Yeah. One one funny thing I think the to go back real quick to Bill Cosby. Yeah. Um who's who I love is one of my favorite comedians even though I uh I also love rap music. Um right. <laughs> is that Bill Bill Cosby uh, people don't know this cuz you know people just know him primarily well sadly People my age primarily know him as, oh, he's that hilarious Jello guy who makes the funny faces. And oh, I think he had a show once. Um, but uh, but like people prim- primarily know him for his comedy. But he has about like 30 like musical albums he's released. Um, it, might, it might not be that many, but it's a lot of musical albums. And some of them are comedic songs and some of them are just straight jazz. And some of them are, you know, Bill Cosby has a lot of musical albums. And. Um, he was a cranky old man in the sixties. Uh, <laughs> he has a song that is, it's basically a parody of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, but it's basically about what a disgrace Jimi Hendrix is and how sad it is to see, to see a famous black person get mixed up with all that hippie drug culture, um, and how he should be ashamed of himself. Well, that's what <laughs> the... So- that's essentially what that speech is. It's just not like hippie culture. It's like hip hop culture. That's what his yeah, whole big rant it's, is. It's, but he's been he's been that forever. He has been cranky, cranky old man, uh, cranky old man. You're you're a disgrace to all these nice white people. They're looking at us and they're thinking we're animals because of you people. <laughs> it's essentially that, the vibe. He likes. Yeah, that's exactly Which what is, it is. Yeah, he, he's an old he's an old man. It's uh, that's gonna happen. Uh, but uh, I love I, don't know. I love I love Bill Cosby anyway. But it's it is funny to me that he has not changed his tune. Um, you would think he would love rap music now now that he's eighty seven. Uh, <laughs> nope, turns out. Andy, when you were reading about Remsburg, is he still alive? Um, I think so. Cosby and Remsburg should get together and, and do a special. <laughs> and do a sitcom. Do a sitcom together. Yeah. Like those, like. Like those weird comedy roundtables that always pop, like that are always the worst things that always pop up on Netflix. Oh, <laughs> it yeah. should be the old man roundtable. <laughs> it should be Bill Cosby, Charles Remsburg, that jazz critic you're talking about, and Rex Reed. <laughs> they should yeah. all just sit, sit in a little semicircle. Moderated by Harry Knowles. Yeah, moderated, <laughs> by, moderated by Harry Knowles. And it ends with them all performing. From Bye Bye Birdie, kids today, <laughs> or kids these days. <laughs> I just feel like uh, Remsburg and Cosby. Like I'm starting to feel like their politics might be similar to one another. 
So do you think do you think Cosby is a big uh you think Cosby is a big proponent of like concealed weapons? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know about like, that. But, he's probably like, concerned about the knife culture, though. Oh yeah, Cosby doesn't have <laughs> Cosby doesn't have an album on knife culture. I find that hard to believe. And no, he has, he has a comedy bit about him, him and his brother Russell finding a knife and thinking, "We thought we were real tough, real tough." And then my mom came in. Da, 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 da. Oh man, Cosby's the best. Don't no one don't believe anyone who says he's not funny. I saw him perform. Uh, like in 2003, I saw him do stand up. Um, so that was like when he was only 98 <laughs> back in 2003. Um, but and he's he's brilliant. He's so funny. I love I love Cosby, and I bet I bet Charles Remsburg's funny too. <laughs> I, I don't think Charles Remsburg has released any comedy albums, but I bet if you ask him and tell some stories about him and his brother growing up, he 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 pull out some good ones. I just imagine Charles Remsburg, a guy who wears like a three-piece suit and like still smokes a pipe. Like that's my perception of him. I almost yeah. imagine like Charles Gray when I think of Charles Remsburg. <laughs> I imagine I, I imagine a man who has a lot of locks on his door and like two separate little security things he has to beat before he goes to bed. Yeah, and he's got a blade underneath his pillow. Wait, yeah. what, he's got that. What's that Mexican knife? What is that thing called? Where they? Oh, are oh you, you mean the thing that with? that's sheep and also <laughs> yeah, other yeah. animals? Yes, <laughs> but it has a great name. I don't remember what it is. Yeah, I don't remember what it's called either. But... That's too bad. All right. Well, that's gonna I think wrap things up. Patrick, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. And uh, where can people find you in the online in the directors club? As well. well, I have the podcast, Directors Club Podcast. You can find that at directorsclubpodcast.com. Uh, my co-host Jim recently did a bonus episode where he got to interview Stephen Tobolowski um, about, among other things, working on Groundhog's Day, sort of as a tribute to the late Harold Ramis. That was a really cool episode. You can check that out there. Um, we do a podcast about twice a month where we cover different directors. Um, I have my own uh, viewing journal at marthamarcynashandyoung.wordpress.com. Uh, I'm on Letterboxd. Uh, uh, my name on Letterboxd is just Patrick Rapol. Um, you know, uh, yeah, that's enough. All right. Andy can be found yes. at uh, Stephen Andy Meet Batman. Any mm-hmm. any new developments since last episode? No. No? All right. Do you think Batman watched Surviving Edged Weapons? Yeah, yeah for uh, training purposes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can find Film Jive on Facebook and at filmjive.wordpress.com. You can send us an email at filmjive at gmail.com. And uh, write us an iTunes review if you haven't haven't mentioned those in, that in some time, and we could use a few. Yeah, when was the last time we received one? I don't know. Don't look, because I don't want to. Was it prior to, to me joining? Probably. Really? Yeah. I'm I surprised we haven't had a flood of now. them. Flood I'm, gonna have to look. You. I'm gonna have to have a look now. The There's thing is, though, one star. Where's Courtney? Oh well, that that brings me to the next thing. Next episode, Courtney will be back. Oh my god! <laughs> so who's Courtney? Courtney is the uh, is the supposed other co-host who doesn't really co-host. No. <laughs> she, ah, she, the Dunkelman. <laughs> she comes and goes when she when she sees fit, basically. So, so what okay. what are we? What are we doing next time that she's going to grace us with her presence? 
Well, next episode uh, was going to be a review of the documentary Maiden Trip, and she was going to be on for that. Have you guys already done a Grand Budapest Hotel? No, episode? no, no. That's... Why are you guys not doing that? <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> I was, it's I was not thinking a... about that when you were talking about, well, there's nothing in theaters we want to see. I'm like, do these guys know Grand Budapest Hotel just came out? Well, it doesn't come out here until... Well, I thought it didn't come out here till the 28th. I guess it comes out oh. on this Thursday after Thursday. Andy looked up the theaters in my area for me. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe we'll do that next. I don't know. Something's, <laughs> something's, something is coming, and Courtney may or may not be here. So people should write emails in asking Courtney what she's been doing for the last I couple of months. If I, if I watch Maiden Trip and then she doesn't show up, <laughs> I'm going to be very angry. You're not, you're not interested in Maiden Trip? I don't know. <laughs> you would love Maiden Trip. It's all about surviving edged weapons. A 14-year-old sailor. Oh, my God. It's about teenagers. <laughs> the youngest person to sail the world. I hate teenagers. <laughs> I hate kids. Are you sure you're not talking about that Zach McCloud movie? Or what was that? Was Charlie McCloud. I think it's Charlie McCloud. Charlie McCloud. Yeah. I like Zach McCloud better. Zach McCloud yeah. sounds like a shareware game from 1991. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. That's... that's... <laughs> Next That's... episode, Zach McCloud. Cover, you're going to be covering Apogee Software's uh, hit shareware Mac game, Zach McCloud. Is she the one that said, let's do Maiden Trip? No, I suggested it to her because I was trying to think of – because, you know, we took that, like, break where there were no episodes. So I'm, like, trying – and yeah. since I'm bored out of my mind right now, like, I'm just like, I just want to keep recording shows. Why not? So I was just like, hey, there's this. Want to do it? And her whole thing was like, yeah, but it can't be during my party weekend. What's her party weekend? Every weekend. Like every weekend. <laughs> so, yeah. She loves to party. She does. This this Courtney sounds like quite a character. Oh, yeah. She loves she... to party. The most recent re- review on iTunes is from September 2012. All right. All right. So there you go. <laughs> It's because it's like the most depressing thing to look at. Don't ever look at your iTunes reviews. Well, it's frustrating because people are always like, "Yeah, I'm gonna write an iTunes review. I'll do that," and then they, nothing ever happens. It's way more depressing than if you got bad iTunes reviews. That's true. Bad iTunes reviews are always a little amusing, but when yeah. just oh, no one cares. I actually, I actually, <laughs> no one cares. there was a point on this show where I was asking people for like, you can leave a bad review. Like, at least that'll be kind of amusing. Um, oh my god, the the most recent Stephen Andy meet Batman review was in December 2013. We haven't wow. even done a show. <laughs> that was probably like the last we hadn't done a show in like almost a year by that point. Well you've you've let them you've you've you built a cult following by that point. Well we really did. We did have like bizarre fans though, so it's because everybody is like they're, they're thinking, oh, if we leave reviews, they'll start releasing shows again. So they're trying yes. to get your attention. I know. Yeah, they're 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 sent they're like sending Batman comics to NBC or whatever to get you picked up again. They don't understand how podcasts work, <laughs> but they're doing one of those, those campaigns. But uh, Patrick, you'll maybe you'll have to come back at some point when we do uh, if Footmen. What is it called, Andy? I don't know what the title if is. The foot if Footmen tire you, what will horses do? Yeah, maybe we'll have to see if you can come back for that. I will come back for any weird bootleg like movie that you'd find bootleg in the back of your weird video store that your parents don't let you go to. I'm, I'll also, I mean, if, if you need me to, 
to to show up for a Faces of Death episode. I'll do that. I'm I'm good with all of it. You know that that is interesting because watching I have never seen Faces of Death, but I felt like watching this that Faces of Death might be something similar, but far more like graphic and disturbing. Well, a lot of Faces of Death is faked. Is the oh, other. okay, I didn't realize that. Like the, most the, of it. The horrible monkey scene is totally fake and looks ridiculous. So that oh yeah, Faces of Death is one of the, I have not seen Faces of Death, but. But it's one of those things where I I was just like, yeah, it's not for me. I'll never see it. And then when I realized when I heard that most of it was faked, I I sort of got a little more interested because I mean again that's part of what makes Mondo Kane so compelling for me is that it's a weird kind of movie where you can't tell what part it's just blatantly lying to you and what part it's telling the truth. Yeah. Have you seen Africa Adio? No, that oh, one. Good, just goodbye, really Uncle tasteless. Tom. Oh, oh goodbye, Uncle Tom. It's yes. the same movie. Adio Zio Tom, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, I was thinking Africa Blood and Guts. Which oh, was... wait. Okay. That, yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's what I, I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah. I've seen Africa Blood and Guts, but I've never seen Goodbye Uncle Tom. Okay, because I own good, Africa yeah, Blood and Guts on DVD, but I've never like watched it, and I've I'm a little that, afraid to like. Uh... That just that just seems too tasteless on a racial aspect. Yeah, yeah. Like there like there are parts of Monokani that are really funny because they're so crazy racist, but like. You know, I, I we talked about this actually when we did an episode on Russ Meyer, where like when I was in high school, I had a much stronger stomach for sort of exploitation. And since I've sort of grown older and more liberal and more, you know, just I, I just I just think about things like that differently now. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't think I'd have the stomach for something like Africa, Blood and Guts. Adiozio Tom sounds fascinating, though. Well, I think we're going to try to do more of these here and there. So. We'll keep you in the loop when we sweet when we do them. All right, so Andy, any anything to say before we we sign off to the listeners? Basically, uh, we we need to stop doing movies that glorify glorify the blade, though. I mean, <laughs> I, I I do think that would be important. We Wait, need to stop. Has, yeah, has your show actually been long enough that you covered Blades of Glory? No, no, <laughs> that's what they meant about movies that glorify Blade. <laughs> yeah. They, they meant comedic ice skating movies with Will Ferrell and Napoleon yeah. Dynamite. Yeah, that's what I, I believe that's the one they meant. <laughs> All right, so that's everything for episode number 65 of the Film Jive podcast. Until next time, keep on jiving.